Today on the LA Countdown, the podcast, I'm Lucas Servodio and welcome to episode one. Can you believe that one day we'll be looking back on this day nostalgically from the James Beard Awards? And yes, we'll eventually be escorted out of the ceremony by security for impersonating Bobby Flay, but who cares? It'll be absolutely glorious. On the menu today, I'll give you a little intro to the LA Countdown and what the heck it's all about. I'll then give you some takeaways I've had from the first month of my epic journey to review 100 iconic LA sandwiches in 365 days. And finally, I'll be joined by friend of the countdown, Cousin Salmon, to discuss the recently dropped James Beard Award semi-finalists. There are a lot of awesome LA restaurants in there, and we'll give them their flowers, but it's really a discussion of why we should even care about these kinds of awards in the first place. So, without further ado, let's chow down. So for those of you who don't know, the LA Countdown is my social media account where I basically just eat a bunch of food. There's a little bit more to it than that though, uh, and I will get into it. But before we do that, I wanted to offer a little window into the origin story of the LA Countdown, how it all began. And essentially it begins where a lot of origin stories begin these days, and that is the pandemic. So... During the pandemic, I uh, started working from home and I found the monotony of it to be quite taxing on my mental health. Just something about the repetitive nature and not having much to look forward to. I knew that it was not a sustainable way for me to live. So at the end of 2020, my girlfriend and I, we sat down and we did one of those journaling exercises where we set goals for the new year. And I wrote down... I want to eat 100 pizzas next year. I didn't really think too much about it. I just knew that pizza is something that brings me joy. I am Italian. I'm not a Guido Italian. Nothing wrong with being a Guido Italian. It's just not me. I am Italian from Italy, from Rome. And uh, like a lot of people, I think pizza is something that just puts a smile on my face. Uh, it is a way of life for me. I grown up, you know, we'd have it at least twice a week. My mom would make it on Saturday nights from scratch, and then we would have the leftovers on Sunday night. And both of those meals were the best meals of the week, every week without fail. So my goal of eating a hundred pizzas was really just a way for me to find a little bit of happiness in the midst of all of the darkness of the pandemic. I wrote this in my journal and I, uh, you know, when it came to actually sharing our goals with each other, my girlfriend and I, I turned to her and I say, hey, look, I want to do this. And I was expecting her to say, you're insane. Why can't you just be normal? Why don't you just pick up gardening? Why don't you pick up sculpting? You know, why don't you like, I don't know, start a podcast like a, like a true crime podcast or something. But instead, she actually looks at me and says, I think that's a great idea. And not only did she think it was a great idea, she said, I think you should document it on social media. This absolutely blew my mind. First and foremost, it was a blessing to get her permission to do this because she's not the biggest fan of pizza, which I've never understood, but I love her nonetheless. And, uh, For her to encourage me to go out and eat pizza was, you know, the be-all, end-all. But then for her to one-up that and encourage me to actually post this on social media, that really took it to the next level and it got me thinking, wow, 
that actually sounds like something that would be really, really fun to do. Thus, the LA Pizza countdown was born. It was just an Instagram account. Um, basically, the premise was this. Me going around to a bunch of different pizzerias around Los Angeles. I'd, I would take a picture of the pizza. I'd review it on stories. And I'd just write a long-ass caption. And that was all she wrote. I went all around the city. You know, I went down to Long Beach to try places like Little Coyote. I was in Santa Monica, uh, hitting up places like uh, that Japanese place, Public Trade, that has since closed. Um, I went to, you know, Hollywood to try Da Michele, uh, Brentwood for Pizzana, just all over the city. And it was just an absolutely incredible experience. Um, of course, the year came to an end eventually. And I did accomplish the goal of eating 100 pizzas. But the question became, what the heck do I do next? How do I keep this going? So what I did is I actually turned to the community of people that I'd, I'd, I'd built, um, the followers, if you will, and I asked them, what do you guys want to see in 2022? And I offered them options like, do you want to see a burrito countdown? Do you want to see an avocado toast countdown, which thankfully nobody took me up on? The winner, it turned out, was taquerias. People wanted to see 100 different taquerias. Now, I love tacos, but I have to say this was a bit more of a daunting journey. I know a lot about pizza. You know, I can talk dough with the best of them. Um, I, I can talk fermentation. You know, I, I have an appreciation for different styles, different techniques. But when it came to tacos, I realized I had a ton to learn. However, that ultimately made for a very rewarding countdown. I did so much research. I had to like reach out and talk to so many different people to really like get a full picture of everything I didn't know you know, so that I could go out and seek out, okay, these are actually uh, Sonora-style tacos. Well, this is actually a Puebloan specialty. Uh, now uh, we're going to dive into the world of barbacoa and learn about all the different types of that. So educationally speaking, it was a fantastic experience. I also realized that it wasn't going to be enough for me to actually just review tacos. I don't think anybody really cares what this one white guy thinks of this this one fish taco. It was more important for me to also tell the story of the tacos, like of, of the people, of the taqueros. And so I, if you go on my Instagram from 2022, you'll notice that there are a lot more interviews with taqueros. And I think that that was honestly key to just make the, the whole thing a bit more watchable uh, for others and honestly for me too. Um, and, uh, it was a fantastic countdown. It truly was. I absolutely loved it. We changed the name. It was no longer the LA pizza countdown. It became the LA countdown. And, uh, you know, the year was, was gangbusters. Did I use that phrase right? I'm not sure, but regardless, it was gangbusters. 2022 came to an end. Once again, we put it up for a vote. What the heck are we doing in 2023? And this time sandwiches won. Sandwiches edged out burgers by just a hair. And I've got a confession for you all, actually. Burgers were in the lead until pretty late in the game. But my girlfriend actually whipped the votes in order to get sandwiches to win. I know. Some, some are going to say it's rigged. And, you know, you would, you would have a case to make. But uh, ultimately, she did that because she thought sandwiches were going to be healthier for me. 
I think the joke's a little bit on her because in the last three days I've had like two fried chicken sandwiches and a massive pastrami sandwich. So I'm not entirely sure that it's going to be so much better for my cholesterol than burgers. But I do think that this is going to be the best countdown of all time. The best countdown yet. And here's why. There are four reasons I am really excited about this countdown. I'm only six sandwiches in, so it's early days, but I can already tell that there's four reasons that this countdown is going to be the best yet. So first and foremost, sandwiches are a universal medium. There are so many different cultures that have their own sandwich, and not only that have their own sandwich, but that have a sandwich that is essential to their cuisine. Think about the banh mi in Vietnam, the torta in Mexico. There there are so many examples of sandwiches like that that I think this is going to be by far the most diverse countdown and in a lot of ways the most interesting. You know, God bless pizza, God bless tacos, but the former had a lot of Italianness and the uh, the latter, you know, was really a, a wonderful showcase of everything that Mexico has to offer. But this one is going to be a truly global countdown, and I think it's going to make for some truly incredible content. So look out for that. Secondly, the second reason I'm really excited about the sandwich countdown is that I think the sandwich is probably LA's signature food overall. I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm laying a claim. If you think about LA's most iconic dishes – it's oftentimes a sandwich. There's the French dip at Philippe's. There's the number 19 at Langer's. There's the godmother sandwich at Bay Cities. You know, if you were to make like the Mount Rushmore of LA foods, I think there's a strong case to be made that like, you know, three out of those five things could be sandwiches. That might be blasphemy to some, but I, I just think that there's a strong case to be made. So I think that in and of itself is going to make the sandwich countdown really interesting and it's also why I've decided I'm not just reviewing sandwich shops this year I'm reviewing individual iconic or epic sandwiches and that's a unique twist which I think is going to actually be very very helpful for people because you know I've reviewed pizzerias, I've reviewed taquerias but maybe you've gone to those pizzerias and you don't know which pizza to order and maybe you've gone and you ordered a pizza that I didn't have and it wasn't all that good. You don't run that risk this year with a sandwich countdown because I'm reviewing individual sandwiches. So if I'm telling you something's good, you know that I'm talking about that exact sandwich and you don't have to you know, mess around and order something different. That is a signature sandwich. So that is number two why I'm really excited about this countdown. Number three is that for the first time in countdown history, we are doing ratings. I've never done ratings before. Um, it just wasn't the point of what I was doing. You know, the point was really to just experience some joy selfishly. It was also to get out of the house. Um, it was also to, I think, spread a little bit of positivity. You know, a lot of small businesses had tough times during COVID, so it felt kind of good for me to go out and 
tell the story of a business that maybe had suffered a bit during COVID or that maybe had popped up over COVID and had eventually become a sustainable business. That's all the countdown was about initially. However, over time, I've learned that people use these recommendations and it's hard for them sometimes to filter between what's actually really good and what's maybe just okay or what maybe is like an interesting story versus just bomb food. And so the rating system is designed to give followers something to really bank on. You know, if, if I'm reviewing a sandwich and it gets a 96%, then I want you to be able to bank on the fact that it's good. If I am rating a different sandwich and, you know, it's like an 80%, you're not going to walk away disappointed. You knew that you were going to a B minus sandwich. So if you went there, it's on you. And maybe you went there because the history of it sounded cool, you know, but the rating system is just supposed to help you, the followers. So, oh, and by the way, let me say, coming up with a rubric for these ratings was not easy. You know, you, you need to have a good rubric when it comes to rating. I was very worried about getting into a scenario where my rubric just was all out of whack. Like you go to one place and you give it a 95 out of 100, but it turns out you were way too generous so that all of the sandwiches that follow have ridiculously high inflated scores because that first one set a, a like an unreasonably high benchmark. No, I wasn't going to let that happen. I created a really, really in-depth rubric that breaks down the sandwich to its bare elements. One, bread. B, fillings. Three, construction. Four, the overall experience of the sandwich. And five, uh, my personal satisfaction. And that's really the wild card. That That category is like... How far would I drive for it? Um, how long would I wait in line for it? What kind of crazy things would I do for it? Which family members would I sell for it? You know, is this a sandwich that I would sell my sister for? Or is it a sandwich I would sell, you know, a distant cousin for? And that would make a difference, right? So that's what the personal satisfaction bucket is about. But all of these things, I think, work together to give a pretty accurate score that you can bank on as the followers. And um, finally, you know, I'm very excited about this countdown because this year, for the first time ever, we've got a podcast, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to it right now. We can, we're actually going to be accompanying this journey with a podcast. I'll be taking you behind the scenes to give you a bit more of an in-depth look um, at some of the sandwiches as we go along. You know, if you want to learn more about a sandwich shop, let's say I reviewed Langer's, right? And uh, you were like, damn, the number 19 looks good, but what else do they got? Or what's the story there? I'd love for you to let me know so that I can maybe do like an episode on Langer's, you know, telling its story, telling some fun tidbits, um, maybe even going into more depth on their menu items. Um, so, yeah. And the podcast isn't going to be just sandwiches, by the way. We're going to be doing a lot more things. We're going to be talking about the food news of the day. We're going to be talking, giving our hot takes on food-related cultural items. Like, for example, have you seen The Menu, that, that new sort of like foodie horror film with Rafe Fiennes and the chess girl? You know you know the one I'm talking about. Uh, we're probably going to review that in the coming weeks and, and give our hot takes on how stupid that film was, frankly. Um, so that's what the podcast is designed to be. So those are the four reasons I am the most excited for the sandwich countdown. And I think you should be too. So if you already follow it, thank you so much. Um, honestly, it's been 
such an honor to do this. And it's the, the most rewarding part has been meeting people, meeting the amazing chefs, meeting the amazing taqueros, meeting all of you who are so passionate about food. Honestly, it's scary. Sometimes I'll put a video out there and just like brace because I know that there's going to be criticism and that's fine. But it's just a testament to how passionate you all are. And I absolutely love that. So thank you for following. If you don't follow, you can find uh, the account on Instagram and TikTok at at the LA countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. Anyways, on to the next section. Okay, without further ado, I am pleased to introduce the first ever guest of the LA Countdown, the podcast. It's Cousin Salmon. Cousin Saul, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Good to be here with you. Yeah, thank you for joining. I know you had a lot of other stuff going on tonight, um, but I, I think it makes sense to uh, maybe just quickly tell the people why you deserve to be here. Why, why do you deserve to be on this podcast? <laughs> Well, fundam- the reason why I'm here is fundamentally nepotism, if you couldn't tell by <laughs> the way you address me. There's, there's not really – I have not eaten 100 pizzas in one place in a year or any good stuff like that. I am just a food appreciator, someone whose actual food appreciation, appreciation of finding and eating great foods was developed by you. Um, but You're no, welcome. <laughs> honestly, thank you. And uh, no, we, we were former roommates. We worked together way back when. And uh, for some reason, you decided to drag me along as Cousin Salman, and I'm here to enjoy. I will say, though, I think the value I bring here is yeah. – uh, I don't know if folks can tell by watching Luca's videos, but he has too many enabler- enablers in his life, I would say. Too yeah, many that's people right. who are so supportive, see him in, in, uh, as, a, as a high-value opinion and, and, and character, and I like to uh, cut you back down to earth. Yeah, you're. I, I mean, you're. So. You're. You're basically my Steve Bannon, is what you're saying. <laughs> is that what Steve Bannon did? I'm not so sure. I feel like Steve Bannon went in the other direction with his uh, with his charges. So yeah, see. yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. <laughs> but we don't. We don't need to get into that. I mean, look. I uh, the reason I have you on here is really yeah. I need somebody to to keep me honest. Um, and also, I I think occasionally by accident you have some pretty good food takes. So I think you've got some pretty good taste. <laughs> I, have, I have a naturally talented palate. I like to bring that to, to my everyday life. And no, I mean, in all seriousness, I, I, I really enjoy uh, exploring new food options. You know how much I enjoy finding new restaurants and new yeah. places. And I think I, think, I bring a, think I bring a good take, though I have yeah. no professional experience or background. But that's, what, yeah. that's not the point here, is it? No, no, it's not. But I, it is a little bit, actually, and here's why. <laughs> I, uh, as I've promised the listeners up to this point is I would love to spend time on this podcast talking about food news and really the media environment around food and sort of like, you know, it's kind of like a bonkers world out there, you know, the whole like yeah. food media industrial complex. And uh, I think you actually – so you, you do have a little bit of background in media, don't you? I, I do. That is true. Both professionally and I would also say as a personal interest, I am a ravenous consumer of content, uh, of food media, and have a lot of thoughts on how food is discussed and what we talk about when we talk about food. And of course, professionally, I have guided various important organizations through media crisis in the past, including the LA Countdown itself. Yeah, no, you are my first call when it comes to crisis comms, which happens with surprising regularity 
Um, I, I wouldn't call it so surprising, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For such a problematic account, like the LA countdown. <laughs> uh, so the speaking of uh, problematic entities, I wanted to uh, start this discussion by talking about some of the the hottest news that dropped this week in the food world, and that is the announcement of the new James Beard Awards semifinalists. Did you catch this? I did indeed. Well, uh, it's kind of so. Yeah, for those who don't know, uh, James Beard Awards are, are like the Oscars of the food world. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say so. Between them and Michelin, there there's some mix of Golden Globes and Oscars in there. There's there's equivalence. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's actually a good comp because Michelin is more global, so therefore it's like the Oscars. Mm. I guess yeah, the James Beard Awards is limited to the United States, so it's like the national Oscars, you might say, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 So I have a fundamental question here, which is, do we care about the James Beard Awards? You know. We've talked about food awards in the past and, and, and the, you know, the value of them and such. I'm actually going to – and we've been quite cynical about them. I, I, think we, I think we a little bit should. We should care. We should care less than we've typically cared about awards. And I do think across the board, whether we're talking about Oscars or food or whatever, people care less and less about the official sort of establishment awarding of certain restaurants and restaurateurs or movies and creators – but I found actually looking through the through the James Beard list why I personally care about them, which is that, yeah, look, they've got some, you know, old standbys here and there. But looking across, for example, the Seattle nominees, which is where I live, I was like, oh, shoot, there are some interesting folks who I've not heard of here who have got a little bit of shine due to, I should say, the more modern take on the James Beard Awards and <laughs> some of the work they've done to you know, maybe expand their perspective. And I think that's valuable in some way to get, get some perspective on it. So you bring up a really interesting point, right? Which is, I think, the criticism that a lot of these awards come under. And it's one of gatekeeping, right? It's one of basically like these awards exist to just elevate people who basically already have platforms um, right. and give them their shine while sort of – and sort of creating this environment where just the rich get richer. Yeah. Um but you feel like they're they're doing something different here. I think I think so. Looking at this list, and of course, with some awareness that you could possibly speak to of the work James Beard has done to sort of expand their purview. I'm looking at this list, and there are uh, restaurateurs and chefs who I know for a fact that even in Seattle have a relatively limited profile who are getting some recognition here, and I, I think that's valuable in some ways. Now, there's like, of course, the ways in which that these these folks are. Uh, chosen and and what it means for folks who are not chosen who may be very much deserving is you know a challenge for any sort of awarding entity but i i I was like kind of appreciative of what i saw when i looked at the list closely and uh and in terms of like the breadth of the breadth of folks that in seattle and beyond who might be exposed to small uh emerging chefs and restaurants that they might not have considered otherwise yeah yeah i mean I wish I could say the same thing about the LA list. I or the LA winners. I I feel like there's maybe one person in Los Angeles that I hadn't heard of. Um, everyone else, and and look, I have to say, like all of the restaurants that were nominated either for uh, Best Chef California or Outstanding Restaurant Tour, uh, Best New Restaurant. Like they're all extremely deserving places. There's not like one place I would look at and say 
nah, that ain't it, you know? Right. But right. it's more so just like, I don't know. I don't think these are actually awards for people in Los Angeles to yeah. care about. Like anybody who knows restaurants in Los Angeles or anybody who doesn't even, I think, but just like has looked on Yelp for somewhere good to eat. You've heard of 90% of these restaurants already. Like this is not a mechanism to discover new restaurants. And maybe that's – obviously that's not necessarily the point, but it does seem to be one of the advantages or one of the benefits that you're outlining, if I'm not mistaken. No, I think that's right. And it actually – I mean it's, it's a second question, right? You asked me why should we care, and I was like, well, we should care because we maybe, maybe get to learn – like get to know some new places, get to know some new restaurants and restaurateurs, and there's some value in that, of course. I'm, I want to dig more deeply into your take in, in Los Angeles. But – the the reason of why they exist is different, right? Why should yeah. we care? One thing. Why should they exist is a different is a different question. So, and and I don't I don't know if I know the answer to that beyond let's get some eyeballs to <laughs> James Beard and Eater, right? I mean, it's yeah. a media in some way in this it, like is a self perpetuating sort of entity, right? There's right. there's really no point except to pat themselves have the, have media pat restaurants on the back, pat themselves on the back, get some more attention to that particular brand. But I mean, yeah, and I, and I don't know the perfect answer to that generally, but I think in general, there's so many restaurants out there, so many movies, so many TV shows. Yeah, there, yeah. there is, I think, some sort of value to having someone, we, may, we might argue over who, help sort of uh, determine where people looking for the highest quality stuff should look. And yeah, yeah. for people outside that to say, you know what, you're actually missing quite a few things here. Well, and that is that comes back to like what is the role of the restaurant critic, right? Like mm-hmm. it I feel like initially when restaurant criticism started, I and I actually don't know this, so I'm gonna speak out of my ass for a moment, but <laughs> I feel like I am I am surmising that when restaurant criticism began, the point was to like let readers know like it was it was literally to inform readers about whether a place was good or not literally that simple it was like hey this new place opened here's what i liked here's what i didn't and it's almost like a tool like a roadmap for people looking to like go out to dinner and also i feel like it probably started in an era where like that was like really vile information to have because people were on more limited budgets they weren't like eating out as much so like you really wanted to be sure if you're going to like one of the expensive restaurants in town you're like you're going to one that has a good rating in the, in like the local times, whatever. Right. But nowadays I I feel like the, the food media that exists, like it should be at its ideal, something that people can use. Right. Like, I, I don't know if I feel like the, the articles that I would imagine drive the most clicks are ones that are like, Oh, 17 new places where you can swish meat and shabu shabu, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I feel like people go to those because they are literally like looking for a shabu shabu spot and they want to know which one is like, quote unquote, approved. That's right. I do think over, over time, as food media has had to evolve to frankly reach audiences, they become much more niche and specific in terms of what their recommendations have to offer to the potential eater. And I'll go back and you, I mean, feel free to cut this out, but to get real nerdy about it for a second. I imagine the reason the reason that restaurant criticism began really is because media outlets felt that it was something that readers would want to buy and read, right? Like, like yeah. there's there, there there's a fundamental financial motive there, and also potentially, and again, let's speak out of our ass. 
there's a almost local marketing or local business value to it. I wouldn't, I'm going to hypothesize that even like local chambers of commerce might've, might've supported or pushed for local like chambers that. of commerce. Now, oh, yeah. now you're out of pocket. But it makes sense, right? When people didn't have Yelp or didn't have a way to uh, understand where to go and how to spend their money in a city, right? It like the part of the thing that something that local media brings is, is some direction in that regard. So and, and of course, since then, since the New York Times critic or local critic um, and with the rest of media evolution has happened, the, the conversations and the structure with which recommendations happen and, and the way they're provided has changed a lot exactly in the way that you're saying. I think yeah. people are, and look, we're, we're speaking, let's say, for our specific demo, demographic to some extent, but people yeah. are curious about the best things in their neighborhood and have a tool in the internet to go find what, might, what they might think is the very best option. And yeah. so the infatuation emerges, Eater emerges, and they provide much more tailored recommendations. Now, of course, there's a whole conversation to have as to how effective they are even doing that, right? Yeah, but- and, it cre- and, and the other sort of problems it creates, right? Like, for example, like, have I feel like it's always the same spots that get written yeah. up. And it's like, it, it, I wanted to, I actually wanted to do like a series on social media, which was called like the restaurant next door, which is basically uh-huh. like, okay, yeah, uh, Evan Funky, the, the legendary Evan Funky, I say tongue in cheek, opened up Mother Wolf in, in Hollywood, right? And it, and it got like absolutely every single uh, newspaper review, every like, you know, infatuation was like, you got to go there. Every blogger was like super buzzy about it. What about the like little shop that's like a block down that's been there for like, you know, I don't know, not not even like 50 years, but like seven years, you know, that maybe yeah. like maybe was like had like a little bit of buzz about it and like j- has just continued consistently for like seven years. Uh, I, I kind of like feel like those are the places that really get slept on. It's not like the historic institution or the old ones or like the buzzy new ones. It's kind of the ones that are just like doing it day in, day out. Um and I feel like there's an injustice to that that's like perpetuated by this like I don't know like I, it's almost like a race to cover the buzziest restaurant at yeah, every publication. Yeah. yeah, yeah, hottest new restaurants and so it's funny. Uh, you named a specific outlet in your preview for this podcast, and I won't rename it here. Uh, but the when I first got to Seattle, I noticed that that outlet, which is a very popular mainstream outlet, had one reporter here in Seattle. Yeah, I, look, we can name Wait, names. It, we can the, name, okay. We're talking the about infatuation. the infatuation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Amy, shout out to Amy Rizzo, who's been holding it down for the infatuation of Seattle for years since I've been here. Uh, but I did notice, um, and, and to Amy's credit, like she's, I think, really done a great job keeping up with evolving trends, finding old places. But she was the only writer for the infatuation of Seattle. And so when I was looking at the infatuation's various lists, where to go on a first date, where to take your family, Quiet night out. I was like, those are uh, those are pretty different needs, my dude. Pretty different needs and pretty similar restaurants <laughs> <laughs> across each list. I was like, I think Amy likes like twelve good restaurants in Seattle. <laughs> just trying, trying to find different ways. And again, uh, she she she's like like literally like the the face of the infatuation in Seattle and kills it. But that was that was a perfect example of like, damn, young people reading the infatuation are going to be continually drawn. To basically the same 15 places over and over again and i would you know coming from la where jonathan gold rest in peace was was still writing stuff by, by the time i left 
Yeah. It was a real, real gap. And I think he's someone who like, we're kind of drawing around this conversation who would go to the restaurant next door and actually assess it and actually try to, you know, look, look away from the spotlight and see what's hiding. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, that, that he ex- that's exactly right. He was like the OG of that, right. Where like at a time when restaurant critics were just writing up the like new Daniel Ballou restaurant or something, mm-hmm. he was literally going to the strip mall in the San Gabriel Valley to review like a flat, a white noodle place. Right. So yeah. it, and unfortunately though, I feel like, a lot of places try to do that, but still it becomes this this like almost like um, echo chamber where they're just reviewing the same noodle shop, you know, and then, then this one noodle shop takes off and there are like 14 noodle shops around it that like are probably just as good, but they just don't have that like seal of approval, you know, from yeah. like – it's I, – I don't know if there's a fix to this. I think it's just basically – you know what? There, there are a lot of like – influencers out there shout out my fellow influencers like who do who are honestly do god's work in this way because a lot of them like may live in these neighborhoods and they've been going to these places for years and they'll post about them i feel like it would be great if if we could move into that more of like an organic direction you know just like going off of like the places you stumble upon more like there, there, there's there's a certain romance missing from like the the current like you know uh the f- state of food media that you come across it just feels like all of the restaurants that are in there are predetermined yeah i i, I think that's right and look it's it, it makes sense in a way right going to a new place putting your cosign on a new place is risk right it's risky it's risky both in terms of the eyeballs you draw and also you put your brand on the line for a specific restaurant. So it makes total sense that uh, like different outlets are going to wait and see who co-signs what and follow suit. So they know that they're kind of on the same page and not stepping out of line or, you know, getting um, criticized for making a bad recommendation, whatever it may be. Um, I will say, I want to, I want to pause here for a second and kind of turn the spotlight right onto you. No, we're talking about about restaurant criticism as some abstract thing. But if I'm not mistaken, the L.A. Countdown goes around eating sandwiches and kind of rating how good they it it, the L.A. Countdown, the the, uh, conceptual entity, how good it thinks those sandwiches are. So I haven't heard your intro yet, but I'm curious, you know, given this environment, given given the critiques you're making, how is what you're going to do or how is what you're doing different in any way? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not saying I'm not part of the problem, um, and that is that is definitely like uh, the first step to to change is acceptance, right? But I feel like I don't know. I feel like I still feel like me and other like Instagrammers and TikTokers that I follow, like forking around or fat fuck or a number of other folks, like we're we. I don't really consider us having like a place of authority you know like we have like we have like opinions right and my ratings are really just a way to like quantify my opinions and i feel like i feel like that was more so born out of like people asking for it as opposed to like something that i even wanted to do you know like okay go keep going i was gonna say like it's really like i was finding that people were like oh that place looks really good but then they dm me and be like how good was it actually because clearly like (laughs) you know you you could never like 
there are some influencers out there who like post videos and like no matter what they're eating, they could be eating like a sandwich with a sock in it. They're like their eyes roll back in their heads like they're experiencing the, the purest bliss they've ever experienced. And I feel like it just it, that is a separate problem where it creates an environment where you don't know who you can trust. And so that's why I did ratings. I feel like that's why someone like Rick Locks does ratings. Uh, shout out, Rick. And uh, I, I, I find there's a real benefit to that. But, you know, it's funny you say that because on the flip side, the LA Times doesn't do ratings. Mm-hmm. They don't give stars, I don't think. I think maybe they did at one point. But like Bill Addison, the restaurant critic, doesn't give stars. Like, right. Which is it's, – it's like them writing about it is the endorsement. You know, yeah, yeah, and, and same thing, same thing with Eater, right? Eater doesn't do ratings, and the infatuation. I actually remember famously saying at one point they were going to stop doing ratings. However, I think they went back to them. Yeah, because what you said, what said is, what you said is really interesting, right? There, there could be a flip here. The audience asks you to do ratings, right? And it was so funny when you're like, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not in a position of power, but I just, I quantify my opinion." With rating numbers, and that's what the times <laughs> for the report system, and so on. But but the point is the, the 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 underlying thing there is that's what audiences want, that's what consumers yeah. want, and so maybe the issue isn't with food media, but with, with the way that we eat and engage with food in our communities. Right? Yeah, like yeah. that that like the, the 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 mindset of an American consumer, which is not an unfair mindset to be clear, but the way like the the the, the you know, competitive slash ranking nature that we as viewers, we as viewer, eaters of food and viewers of movies and readers of books demand knowing what's best so we know how to spend our time and money drives maybe in some ways the lack of what you were calling magic or authenticity yeah. in the way these things are looked at. Dude, it's true. I mean, obviously consumers play a part. I mean, I, I'm guilty of this. I mean, I think about like there's just something like that happens in your brain chemistry when you're having like an in and out burger versus like, <laughs> you know, a Jack in the box burger. It's like fundamentally very similar ingredients, you know, obviously preparation is different and whatnot. And we can get into the nuances, but the branding and the cachet and whatnot is so much different. You know, you might even enjoy a Jack in the box burger more than an in and out burger, but you're never going to post that shit on Instagram. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you're never going to like, like take a selfie with like a, a, a patty melt from like Jack in the box in the drive through and be like California, baby. Like that's just not, it's not going to happen. And that's because the branding of in and out is so strong. And I feel like that's the same deal for a lot of these like quote unquote hot new restaurants. Like, you know, I'm much more likely to take a picture of myself at PJ palace. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's like kind of like a cool place to be seen. Something happens in my brain when I'm having that food, because like, you know, I, I feel validated because I am there uh, versus if I'm just like at all India cafe, excellent Indian restaurant in Glendale. Right. I'm, I might not Instagram that because it's just not as sexy, you know? Is this a bad time to announce my new platform, the Jack in the Box 100, where I go to be a <laughs> um, It's a perfect yeah, no, time. You... Perfect time. <laughs> no, everyone, no, no. everyone ends with, and I can confirm that that was indeed a Jack in the Box. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, and look, I, this, I, I'm not sure what, what all more to say aside from there, there's, there, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't even know if it's a, really a vicious cycle. And I do think 
the process that that everyone from Top Chef to James Beard to Eater has gone through about trying to push themselves to be more, I don't know, expansive in the in what they're looking at, what they're looking for, more, um, I think, accepting of different kinds of new cuisines, something that they should have been doing for years, especially once Jonathan Gold pioneered the process of doing so. Everyone used to talk about Jonathan Gold as, as if he was some unicorn and as if they couldn't do the same things yeah. where they were at, right? And it seems like the tide is shifting in some way. Now, I don't know if that means that these awards and what it means to chase these awards and you know we, i've listened to i know you have too. listen to restaurant tours and chefs speak about how much pressure and how sort of negative and demanding the awards environment is for them particularly yeah. michelin stars like i don't i don't know if there's a way to stop that particular cyclone beyond consumers you know as we get more educated and learn more and hopefully get to um I, I think the fundamental shift would have to come at the consumer level before the media level. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I, it's a tough one, man. It, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's our job here to fix this right now, but certainly <laughs> by, by episode 50 of the podcast, we will have solved it, and that is a promise we'll to everybody it. out there. Yeah. In um, conclusion, fuck James Beard. Fuck James Beard. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, that was, that was my question is like, where do we land on James Beard? Because – We've been talking a lot about the food media, but like James Beard isn't food media. They're a foundation technically. Like yeah. they're 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 doing something a little bit different. Now a lot of the incentives are the same. You know, they are using their platform to sell sponsorships, you know. Like mm-hmm. it's I don't know who the hell is sponsoring the James Beard Awards this day these days, but it's probably like Capital One or something like that, you know? And so like it's all about like there, there is an industry to it, right? But there is something slightly different. To me, I feel like the James Beard Awards, where it, where it shines, is the fact that it, it's an industry title, right? And to the to the to the extent you can have an impact in like helping a restaurant and giving its recognition, giving it its recognition for its longstanding service to the to the industry in some in some way. I think there's a value there. Um, I just think it's not all that's happening, if that makes sense. Well, and, and I know, like, I think we're going to transition this conversation soon, but to your, the, the, you made a great point. They're a philanthropy, right? And so what are the awards? The awards are fundamentally a marketing tool for the philanthropy, right? To raise that yeah. philanthropy's profile. Why is it called the fucking Michelin Guide? It's because Michelin tires want to create a guide to tell people how far they should travel to restaurants. <laughs> That are good, yeah. right? And it, yeah. It's one yeah. other thing. And so, I mean, to the to the question of why these things exist and why you should be care, they were at the beginning. They were, you know, uh, essentially marketing tools, brand building tools that are now things that dictate dictate an industry and how we feel about the people in that in that industry. And maybe they shouldn't be because I don't know if you can separate that fundamental purpose from why they began and why they started to how they function today, no matter how hard they try. And maybe the countdowns, the influencers, and the, you know, hopefully, knock on wood, future Jonathan Golds of the world um, yeah. will be, who, who I think come from maybe a pure place in terms of what they look for, what they find, and how they communicate to people about what to appreciate will become, will emerge more and more. But yeah, it remains to be seen. Well, uh, with that in mind, I do want to give flowers to some of the recipients, uh, the LA recipients of the, uh, 
of the James Beard Awards that were announced, and uh, a couple of which I know you've been to. So I wanted to just say their names and get a quick reaction from from you of what you thought of that restaurant. One is Moose Craft Barbecue. Best of the best. The they're they're the one. I hope so. I believe this is a semifinalist list. They yeah. should end up at the top of it as a winner at the very end. The very best taco I had last year during your taco countdown. The be- I mean, that they and they, by the way, uh, and I, I know you know this, but a neighbor, uh, 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 I believe a couple or, or, or a couple yeah. of residents of Lincoln Heights neighborhood who came back, built the restaurant in the space and are the best at doing what they do. They are everything that a list like this should be finding. Now, of course, to our point earlier, Moosecraft has been well recognized already, including by Michelin. So it's yeah. not exactly like a big discovery by by James Beard to put them here. And frankly, if they had been really doing their homework, Moosecraft would have been on this list five years ago. Well, but, that would have been okay. That's too soon, bro. They were like I, I they were they we, were like we, a, knew we knew about Moosecraft. We knew I was following Moosecraft on Instagram. Five yeah. years ago, no problem. We went to their pop up at a brewery, my dude. Like, like that—that's different. <laughs> you know? well, I feel but, like, but, but is it right? To your very point, someone someone is eating that food and recognizing how good it is. It's just as good. I mean, look, it might be a little bit better now, but it was amazing then. It was Michelin ready on that day in 2016 or whatever we had. And it's a shame that it took so long and took someone to take a—I don't know who did it first—but took a little while for people to make the bet on putting their stamp on Moosecraft as a great place before they get this national recognition. Damn, they were doing the thing back then. Yeah. Um, no, and, and look, I actually Moosecraft, I think, is one of the like more timely choices because yeah, I think their brick and mortar opened what last year? Like two it, years. It, two, last years year, ago? two years. Yeah, yeah. yeah something so, like that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of these other <laughs> restaurants I, I've said this before, but it feels like giving Scorsese the Oscar for the aviator. You know, it's like they're <laughs> They're yeah, like yeah. they're they're only now recognizing whole box, which has been making some of the best shrimp tacos in Los Angeles. Or not just shrimp, but fish and seafood tacos for I I want to say a decade. You know, I mean, best chef California Jazz from Jitlada is on here. Like, how has she not been on Wait. here before? You know. Well, I, I'll give you a quick a quick fact check, which you may be able to edit, but it's possible that. These restaurants have been semifinalists in the past. Fair enough. Right? And, Fair. Yeah, and they're coming back around. Um, That's but you're enough. exactly yeah, 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 yeah. And I would be curious to see like how how that's evolved over time. But to loop back, I mean, whether it's Gelada or Moosecraft or Whole Box, can you like what what we would have missed if Moosecraft had not been able to, for whatever reason, get their brick and mortar, or who had had been shut down by COVID without getting the necessary recognition? from the people who dictate tastes in this industry, right? Yeah. You would have lost some of the best barbecue in California, possibly the country because of that. And that's, that's the power that this industry has. And that's why it's so important that they, I don't know, do the work that needs to be done to make sure they're exploring beyond just, as we're saying, the Martin Scorsese is doing the aviator. Yeah, no, that's fair. Okay, and, uh, next restaurant I want to bring to your attention. I genuinely think you haven't been to any others, so uh, which <laughs> which is actually like an indictment on me. I need to bring you to more places. But uh, Pija Palace for best new restaurant. Mm-hmm. What do you yeah. think? I mean, look, <laughs> that one feels a little. I mean, look, I, we went to Pija Palace. I liked Pija Palace. Uh, it's having, wait, had a, wait, for the uh, listeners at home who, who maybe live under a rock and don't know what Pija Palace is, can you give a quick breakdown of what it is? 
PJ Palace is a beautiful concept of a sports bar that serves essentially fusion Indian Italian, would you call it, or Indian bar food cuisine? You know the, the I, I, combo better. Yeah, I, th- I think Indian Italian is because their signature dishes are really pizzas and pastas. I think right. Indian Italian would be the best way to say it. And they do, they do. I mean, look, some dishes really, really hit. Some are, you know, more misses. And I don't know. It, it's a funny look. I don't know how where, where the tipping point happens for places like this, but if PJ Palace hadn't quite been in the location it's at or had the branding it has or a couple of really good Instagrammable dishes, it's just possible that it would have been a mediocre place in, other, in, other, in another context. That's my opinion. If PJ Palace opened in Seattle, for example, in, in some like lush or known neighborhood, I don't know if it gets the shine it does. So seeing it here, I'm very happy for it. Very unique concept. Great place to go and watch a baseball game. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like that inclusion is more, uh, you know, flavor of the year kind of yeah. inclusion. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I feel I really like PJ Palace. I, I reviewed it last year um, kind of as a one-off, honestly, because I wasn't doing the pizza count that anymore. But I... Um, I really like their dishes. I really like the concept. I agree with you. There are some misses. Um, it, I, I think it's. I think it deserves the the nod for best new restaurant. The thing is, like, if this were just just like an LA list, you know, best new restaurant, I would be like, duh, you gotta include PJ Palace. This is best new restaurants in the country. In the country, yeah, yeah. And to me, I struggle. I struggle to believe that there aren't like, you know, 15 better new restaurants out there, but because Pedro Palace has had such incredible, truly, it's been like the press darling. It's been like, it's been like, you know, the, um, the Joel Embiid of, of, uh, (laughs) of, uh, of restaurants in LA this year and and nationally, frankly, um, I feel like maybe it wouldn't have made it. I I think, look, we went to Camp Social House in Seattle for dinner one night. I would be willing to bet Camp Social House makes better food and just as good of an environment as Peach Palace. But it's Camp, not in Silver Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's not in Silver Lake. It's not, not in Silver Lake. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you don't you don't have a bunch of Nepo babies going there after their <laughs> Ar- after their Erewhon run. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry to any Nepo babies out there. Uh, you're, you're, you're a valued countdown listener as well. Um, yeah, man. Well, that was a pretty comprehensive take on the James. I'm not sure we really like figured out the James Beard awards, but you know what? Well, we can revisit this conversation after they, they put out their next list. I, I would like to. I feel like we should start doing more homework before our before these podcasts because Dude, we we really we really Joe Rogan did today. Oh yeah, oh for sure. <laughs> yeah. We need to get a fact checker, man. We gotta get like a Gen Z fact checker who can just like Google stuff as we're talking and tell us how we're wrong in real time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's also it's also almost like a pop quiz for listeners. You know, like if if we made mistakes, please drop it in the content in the in the in the comments. Um, so yeah. Anyways, I actually wanted to do a. Uh, finish this off with a quick game that I would like. I'm going to catch you by surprise with this one, but it's a quick game that I'd like to start uh, instituting and it's called over under, which is really just overrated or underrated. I'm just going to quick fire you some things and you have to tell me if it's overrated or underrated and you can elaborate on it if you wish. Okay. Okay. First thing, tinned fish. Underrated. Underrated. People think I, I think 
that is like a high end, like grocery store product that people haven't realized how delicious, nutritious and versatile it is. Tin fish is, I think on the, on the cusp of being really discovered more broadly. Okay. I, I like that take. Um, handmade pasta. Overrated. Not worth the effort quite. Now, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me say, homemade handmade pasta, overrated. You and uh, your fiance got me a wonderful cookbook and pasta press for my birthday a couple years ago. Admittedly, I've tried to make pasta once. Did not go great. It's supposed to be really easy. I would say overrated. What makes pasta, you're going to kill me for this. What really oh, makes pasta, in my opinion, I'm a sauce boy. Don't worry wow. about the handmade. Don't worry about your al dente. Whatever. Like, cook, cook your pasta right. Get a box. What it, what it was like briskles or some shit. Get it from the grocery store and make a beautiful sauce, and you're just fine. So you want? So basically, you're you are you a ragu boy? <laughs> no ragu, sh- sure. But put a little put a little flavor on that, man. Like mess around, throw some fresh garlic in there, put some red chili flakes. Mess around, do it right. Cook your pasta, then pour it into the pasta uh, the saucepan separately. Make sure it gets coated. That's what makes your good homemade homemade pasta. Uh, this w- this was absolute blast for me. I'm gonna have to <laughs> scrub this out. Uh, okay, that's that's interesting. And and my final question for you: Seattle restaurants, overrated, underrated? Ooh. That you mean at like a national level? No, I mean like I, I yeah, like like what is like the people pers- people looking at Seattle being like that place has good food, or people in Seattle being like, oh, we have great food. I I think a, as as best you can a mix of both, sort of like what is the what, perception of Seattle food scene, both within and nationally. I'm gonna go. <sighs> Shoot. I think I'm going to go mildly underrated. Mildly wow. Underrated. I did not yeah. expect that from no, you. No, I, 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 my first instinct was overrated. I, I do think there's been and, – and I think when I got here especially, I should say this. 2017 when I got here, I would go highly overrated. Um, I was pretty disappointed in, in when I, coming over from Los Angeles, which is like look, a tough comparison. L.A. is like an international, like huge city. Seattle's a bit smaller. But I was disappointed with the options here when I first arrived. I do think in the last several years, for whatever reason, including through COVID, Seattle's had a, had a little influx of great chefs, great restaurants, great restaurant concepts, which both by, I mean, very, very mildly by James Beard, but increasingly by local reviewers and influencers have been getting recognition that's, that is warranted. And I think like your, like your camp social houses, there's a really great, and I can't remember it's name off the top of my head, Turkish restaurant that just opened out here, I think in Ballard. That was initially a pop-up, and that's like a really special place. We got Kenji Lopez all holding it yeah. down yeah. here in the city now, finding new places, finding great places, and pointing them out to folks. Honestly, he might be a huge part of this, and and uh, as and more people uh, hopefully continue to follow him and learn from him, I think he's someone, and especially who's opened my eyes to the to the value of Seattle cuisine. So I'm going to go mildly underrated. Okay, well that that was uh, a controversial answer, but we'll accept it. You win the game. Congratulations! Oh uh, hell yeah! All right, well, cousin Saul, thank you for joining. Uh, we might have you back on. We don't know yet. We'll have to evaluate this performance and then <laughs> go from there. Hey, look, give me a James Beard award for the podcast already. I'm here for it. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. 
So that's a wrap, folks. The first episode of the LA Countdown, the podcast in the books. Thanks to our guest today, Cousin Salman. Thank you for listening. And if you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe and rate us on Spotify. Also, if you have any ideas of the kinds of topics you'd like for us to cover or the guests you'd like to see come on, please hit me in my DMs on TikTok or Instagram at at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. Thanks as always. That's all for today. Countdown out.